Well, hello everyone, it's John Paul, the Car Doctor, and welcome to another Car Doctor program. On our program, we try to help and inform people and try to keep up with the latest automotive trends, uh, do some new car reviews, uh, answer some questions that get emailed to me, and of course the easiest way to get a hold of me these days is with an email, send it to jpaul at aaanortheast.com. You can try to find me on Facebook, Mr. John F. Paul at Facebook or John Knows Cars at Facebook. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, at John F. Paul on Twitter is a good way to do it. You can probably find my Instagram page. Well, I just drove about 3,200 miles back and forth to Florida, well, within the past month or so. And one of the things I noticed was uh, the electric vehicle population is certainly growing. I'm seeing more and more electric cars uh, popping up here and there. Uh, but what really surprised me was we're seeing electric cars growing in rural areas. And with us is Kyle Brower. He is the executive analyst for iccars.com. And Carl, can you help explain this phenomenon of electric and hybrid vehicles growing in sort of rural areas where we wouldn't expect to see them? Yeah, we really are. It's, it's clear that uh, we've transitioned from you know, a kind of compartmentalized buying behavior where it's only people in Los Angeles or maybe Seattle and San Francisco, or maybe a little bit in New York and Miami who are buying these electrified vehicles, electrified being hybrid and electric. Uh, it has now really started to become very comprehensive and pervasive throughout the country. And when we looked at growth in market share for hybrid and electric vehicles from 2014 to 2022, the number one state with the highest growth uh, percentage, the, the fastest growing market share was Mississippi. And I don't think most people would have guessed that if you asked them where they thought electric vehicle and hybrid vehicle demand has gone up the most in the past eight years, they probably wouldn't have said Mississippi. But that was the number one state. Then we had like Hawaii in there, Utah in the top five. And really when we looked at the top 15, you had um, some very interesting states in there, Alabama, Nebraska, so uh, it's growing in non-traditional areas, areas people wouldn't associate with, you know, quote unquote, green uh, demand or green uh, uh, oriented citizens. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it really has seemed like, uh, you know, and I guess it's not to be surprised that, you know, uh, early adopters, you know, California, the West Coast, everything starts on the West Coast and moves east. And uh, but usually it's the coast, usually it's the West Coast and the East Coast and sort of blends to the middle. But to see this kind of growth and you and I talked once before about electric vehicles and how they're searched for. But it seemed like electric and hybrid vehicles, people were searching for them, but they're a little bit slow to pull the trigger on buying them. Uh, but right. this is really starting to show that uh, thinking is coming around a little bit. Precisely. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, John, is that we used to see a lot of people curious about them, but the ones that would commit to ownership was pretty limited to those early adopter states, as you said. And now we see these commitments coming from non-early adopter states. And, uh, you know, I think when you think about the fact that California barely made like the top 10 in terms of growth, and a city like Los Angeles didn't make the top 15 in terms of cities that were big, uh, but Birmingham, Alabama did make the top. It was in the, it was the number seventh in the city. When we broke it down by city or metro area versus state, 
uh, California is, you know, Los Angeles didn't make the top 15, Birmingham, Alabama, number seven. Do you think it has to do with saturation? I mean, California has the has had the highest percentage of electric vehicles, for instance, uh, compared to the rest of the country. Is there kind of a saturation rate that maybe comes into play here where, uh, and I'm making the number up, 10% of the uh, new car sales in California are EVs as opposed to maybe 3% in Boston. Um, is, is that sort of the growth window uh, when you look at that, that maybe there wasn't that big a number and it had that chance to pop up to three or four percent? Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. I think obviously when you've only got a few people with electric vehicles, it's much easier to have that growth rate go up rapidly versus when you already have a lot of people with electric vehicles, relatively speaking. Uh, and, and I think you're right that that there seems to be kind of more resistance once you're somewhere in like the five to 10% range of the total market in a given state versus when you're in the, you know, half percent to three or 4%, where there seems to be much more potential for rapid growth. That's what we saw with this study. But still, when you think about the fact that the growth rate in California was right around 70%, and then the growth rate in Mississippi was 241%, you know, even though Mississippi started much smaller, they're growing at over three times the rate of California. So uh, that's going to start to flatten that out. You know, I think I think what's going to happen is you may see more resistance on the five plus percent market share states, but you're going to see less resistance. And eventually we're going to have this kind of flattening out of most of the states probably being around five percent versus only a few of them. And uh, I think maybe it was just over the weekend I read someone else's study that said, once electric vehicles get in that 5% range, that's sort of the tipping point. That might be the point that uh, when you see 5% of the new car sales being EVs or, or plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, or maybe even just hybrids, um, that really starts to kind of turn things around a little bit where people start to go, you know, maybe, maybe a hybrid, maybe a plug-in hybrid, maybe a pure battery electric vehicle is something that would work for me as well. Do you see that in your studies as well? Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, market share begets market share, awareness begets awareness, you know? So we're going to keep seeing these things go from kind of what are still considered by many people, these exotic, weird, you know, cars. And as they become less exotic, less weird, less strange, uh, the idea of buying one because your neighbors had one for two years, hasn't had any problems. And now they get to drive past three, four, five, six dollar a gallon gas uh, signs and not care about them because they're running either a pure electric or even a plug-in hybrid, which a lot of people can use as a pure electric for most of their driving if they've got 40, 50 plus mile range out of these plug-in hybrids. And I think that particularly in the last six months, obviously with gas prices is probably really starting to resonate with people. The idea of getting away from being at the mercy of those uh, fuel prices by getting one of these vehicles. And, um, and and your studies have pointed to this in the past, that the fleet of cars in the United States has never been older than it has been, uh, you know, 12.4 years or whatever it is now. And so people shouldn't expect to see, you know, every other house on the road have a hybrid or, a, or an electric car in the driveway, because it does take a while for that fleet to start to turn over to see those new cars on the road and in people's driveways. 
hundred percent. And then you roll in the fact that um, new electric uh, vehicles are getting better in every way, but they're also continuing to get more expensive. You know, we've got a global conflict that's causing a reduction in the supply of lithium and palladium and nickel, all the things you need to make battery packs for electric cars that are only getting harder to get at the particular, at this particular moment, making them even more expensive. So, you know, there is still this kind of price difference between an internal combustion vehicle and an electric car. And that can be a big stumbling block for people. Price is a huge determinant for people when they're buying a vehicle. And if there's a big jump to get an electric car, new or used versus an internal combustion engine vehicle, that's still a big barrier. So longer term, we really need to see price parity and hopefully not because internal combustion engine cars just keep getting more expensive, but because the price of electric vehicles starts to drop and they can start to come together. And I, and I think if that, if that were to happen, like if tomorrow we woke up and somehow the difference between electric car and an internal combustion engine car was nothing price-wise, you've got the same amount of car for the same money. I think you'd start to see some real rapid EV adoption, but we're not there yet. And some, some would say we seem further away from that now than we were six months ago because of what's gone on with the supply of some of these materials. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, uh, and I remember hearing from, it was some executive for Toyota 15 years ago that kind of their vision was that you were going to buy, you know, pick the vehicle, a Camry. And it was going to be a gasoline Camry. It was going to be a hybrid Camry. It was going to be a plug-in hybrid. And maybe it'd be an electric car. And, in some cases, that has almost come true with a lot of vehicle manufacturers that the powertrain is just a box you check off when you go to order the vehicle, kind of mm-hmm. almost making this the golden age of the automobile, the new golden age, where you do have probably more choices than you ever have when it comes to uh, buying a car. And I think sites like IC Cars, where you can really do the comparison and do some of that homework ahead of time is really valuable for people trying to make that decision and do those side-by-side comparisons. Agree hundred percent. You know, it's not just the golden age of cars, it's the golden age of information. And so you now have the ability to sit in your house and see what the price of all these different types of vehicles are across the entire country in different markets and different States. And I keep telling people in today's world more so than ever, flexibility is your friend. If you're looking to buy a new vehicle, or a new to you used vehicle even, if you can be more flexible in not only what you're willing to buy, but where you're willing to go to get it uh, with all the information available to know that you could potentially save two, three, five thousand $5,000 by going a couple states over, that seems like a pain to go that far to get a car, but at $5,000 savings, even if you gotta go get a plane ticket and it takes you two days to drive back, you break down $5,000 on a per hour basis and with the price of that uh, airline ticket, you're still making good money. You're getting a good pay rate to save your $5,000 car purchase and go to a couple states over three, four, 500 miles away. So uh, that's the great thing about today's world is that we have both the variety of cars, as you mentioned, and the variety of information and the ability to know where, where those cars are, which cars are priced, how, and if you want to travel to go get something and be more flexible in your shopping, you can. Yeah, it, it really, it really is. I mean, it, it you know, pre-pandemic, people would say to me, when is there a good time to buy a car? And basically it was any time was a good time to buy a car. Maybe you could do a little bit better at the end of the month, or maybe the last day of the year, you might do a little bit mm-hmm. better because there may have been some bonuses or spiffs that could be applied to you. But basically, if you went in on the 10th of the month or the 20th of the month, it really wasn't any different. Uh, today, it's a little bit tricky. And uh, and there is a little bit of um, 
sticker shock, I guess, when people are shopping a little bit and they're not seeing quite the variety. So like you pointed out with a site like IC Cars, all of a sudden now your showroom doesn't have any walls to it. Um, you're, you're looking at a lot wider view of where you can go car shopping. And as you pointed out, I live um, outside of Boston. You know, could I drive to Hartford and get a good price on a car? Absolutely. Would I? Absolutely. If I could save several thousand dollars, sure. Exactly. And that's really what people need to keep in mind is just expand your horizons, literally, in terms of where you're willing to go for your car. And you might be happily surprised at the level of money you could save. Yeah. And before we let you go, let's kind of just review what IC Cars is, kind of kind of where it started. I know it started with um, with uh, one of one of the uh, CEOs was frustrated in the car buying world. He went out car shopping, couldn't find what he wanted. And that sort of turned into IC Cars. But um, kind of give us the Reader's Digest version of what IC Cars is. Yeah, you know, it's it's an information site about vehicles that help you pick the car you want and, and identify where and how much you should pay for it. So we've got all the vehicle listings across the country from all the dealerships and private individuals. So you can look in whatever area you want. And then we can tell you how good a deal it is based on the market in, in that local area, whether you're overpaying or underpaying. And so it's really very easy to find vehicles that are currently for sale locally or nationally or anywhere in between. And that's kind of our primary business model. But of course, we also have a full editorial package with all sorts of studies like this one we just did on hybrid electric vehicle market share. But lots of advice articles on how to buy a car and how to save money, which cars are hot, what's going on with the pricing trends. So not just the vehicles, but a lot of context and data behind the vehicle sales that uh, we've turned into hopefully uh, very usable consumer information for shoppers. Yeah, I know, uh, you know, kind of a, maybe disappointing when you go to buy a new car, but some of the ones that depreciate the fastest, as an example, can be some of the best used car values. Right. And that's what you always want to keep in mind is that uh, there are certain cars and certain brands that are known for kind of dropping in value, but that just means don't buy them new, but seriously consider them used because what you can get off on that price from new two or three years later, it could be substantial. And if you really like those cars, that's a great way to get one of those vehicles and save a lot of money in the process versus you know, buying it new and you taking the hit to your uh, depreciation. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, uh, private party used car sales. Uh, if I had a car for sale, I could I could post it on IC cars, just like the largest, largest newer used car dealer, right? Exactly. Yeah. You can list cars there uh, and help, we can help you sell the car as well as obviously buy your next car. And we also have vehicle history reports. So if you're looking at a car, you can get the VIN and put it into a vehicle history report and get a very comprehensive report on the maintenance and any accidents the car may have had or anything else that's going on with it. And you even have a feature where if I'm out car shopping on a Saturday afternoon, uh, I can scan a VIN code and actually do the research that way, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can put the VIN in and uh, get that immediate information on the vehicle and see what you should be paying versus what the dealer is asking. Yeah. And those numbers are not kind of smoke and mirrors numbers. Those are based on actual sales, right? Yeah. It's really, when you think about it, it makes total sense. And it's, again, the beauty of the combination of data and information like the internet. We can see what various vehicles with certain years, make, model, and, and mileage are selling for. And we can get a very quick snapshot of what the kind of transaction prices are for these cars. And thus, any given model, we can see where it falls in that spectrum and know that you're paying either too much, too little, or about right for the car. And hopefully you're, you're paying below 
the good deal price for the average price. That's what we can help you identify. And do this before you go car shopping. There's nothing worse than going out and buy something and find out you're overpaid, right? Information is power, John. I always yep. say that. So get your information ahead of time. You'll have a lot more power in the negotiation for your car. Yeah. And if people are interested in where they can find this information, whether it's the, the whether the cars that are for sale, maybe they're thinking about selling their own car or doing some of the research on the editorial side of the site, the letter I, ccars.com, right? Yeah, I-S-E-E, uh, like kind of sees candy, we say iccars.com. Carl, as always, thank you for sharing your knowledge and insight on the automotive market. Great talking to you, John. Have a great day. Well, it's time to open up the mailbag. We don't really have a mailbag, but if you want to send me an email about your car, you can do that. You can send it to jpaul at aaanortheast.com. Be happy to answer it. Each email gets personal replies, so I do answer every single email. Uh, and every once in a while, somebody says to me, is there any such thing as a uh, silly email or something that's a dumb email? There's no such thing. Email me any question you have about cars or the automotive industry or even a little bit about technology. I can try to help you there as well and uh, try to point you in the right direction. Always like to be able to give people second opinions of what they think is wrong with their car or maybe they think about buying a car. Maybe try to help them with opinions about that as well. So uh, always try to always try to do the best we can with folks. And uh, some of the questions that came in this week that actually made it to different columns. One was um, about a 2009 Dodge Caravan. They said it's in excellent conditions. It was kept in the garage for most of its life. But the driver's side outside mirror seems to be glass. But the passenger side appears to be plastic. The problem is the passenger side mirror has terrible water spots. It's it should be glass. It shouldn't be plastic. But someone may have actually replaced it with a uh, with a plastic replacement. I've seen some to glue right on, and it is possible that it did have water spots. Somebody may have cleaned it with um, some cleaners that have acid in them, and that could have affected the plastic. Uh, there is a inexpensive cleaner uh, that I've purchased, and I think I have it every place that I look. It's called Awesome. You buy it at the Dollar Tree. Uh, it's a, now a dollar and a quarter, I guess, uh, but it's a really good cleaner, but not good on plastic surfaces like the inside of a dash in front of a speedometer, for instance, so you don't want to use that. But I would start with, you know, uh, just try to clean it up the best you can, uh, maybe try some vinegar and water first, and then try Sprayway, which is a, a good foamy window cleaner, and then clean it up with a microfiber cloth if that doesn't work. I'd probably pop the mirror off and just replace it. It'd probably be easier. Uh, somebody else wrote in about the infamous Hemi Tick, uh, which is uh, in the Hemi engine and Chrysler engines, and it's a uh, the 5.7 liter engine. Uh, some people are calling it a flaw. Some people just call it a characteristic. You know, what's going on with the engine? Is there something wrong with it? What I have seen wrong with these is people that don't change the oil quite often enough will have a problem, and uh, the roller uh, lifters in this will actually start to stick and when they stick they actually start to wear and they get flat spots in them and you get this a noisy lifter tick sort of thing which shouldn't happen 
because they're, they're not adjustable. So they shouldn't, shouldn't make a noise, but they actually stick in the roller stick, and that's what causes the noise. And the replacement, unfortunately, is to take the engine apart and replace the lifters, and sometimes the camshaft, which also becomes worn. The other tick, which is pretty common on these engines, is the exhaust manifolds crack. So something to be aware of there as well that can cause some of those, some of those various noises that can come up. Another question that came in, uh, the person says they're a pretty good uh, DIYer mechanic, so they do a lot of their own work, and they're wondering about a scanner, and uh, this kind of relates back to uh, about a month or so ago, I gave away a scanner, it was uh, from a company called Innova, uh, it's the 5610, which is one of the ones I'm, I'm playing with, it's a, um, it's almost, it's almost a professional scan tool. It's a pretty good quality tool. And the other one is the uh, 5310. So 5610, a little bit better. 5310, a little less, um, has a little less features. Um, it's, they both support anti-lock brakes and airbag codes, oil maintenance reminders, and they even do an alternator and battery testing, which is kind of nice. Uh, what's nice about these tools, they connect to something called Repair Solutions 2, which is an app which kind of give you verified fixes of what's wrong. So if you're not sure and you come up with a code, uh, you, plug, you plug that code into their app, and it'll give you what people have found is wrong with the car and be able to get it to work out the way it should. So uh, you can always, you know, again, send me an email. There are a couple ways to do it. You can email me at jpaul at aaanortheast.com or you can always uh, go to aaa.com slash doctor. There's a place there to be able to um, send, me, send me emails, read some of my articles and so forth. You can always follow me on Twitter at John F. Paul or Facebook, John Knows Cars, and uh, listen to this podcast on all your favorite podcast channels, including um, johnfpaul.podbean.com, uh, or you can, uh, or you can, uh, you know, check on any of your favorite websites. You can you can find it. It's uh, pretty much everywhere, so it should be easy enough to find. Uh, so those are some of the questions that came in this week. You can read my column in New York Newsday, the Boston Globe, the Providence Journal, uh, the Troy Records, some other Central and Western New York newspapers, the Quincy Sun, about once a month at the Quincy Sun, uh, just about every edition of the Yankee Express, you can find my columns there. Uh, we were talking about a variety of different vehicles and one of the ones that certainly I would like to talk about is the one I've just driven recently, and um, it is the Mazda CX-50. And the Mazda CX-50 is a pretty interesting car because it, it actually kind of confused me a little bit because I wasn't quite sure why there was a CX-50 and a CX-5 until I started to do a little bit of research. So the CX-50 is similar to and different from the Mazda CX-5. Actually, the CX-50 shares its platform with the smaller CX-30 crossover. The all-new CX-50 is Mazda's attempt to add a little to their off-road portfolio. Think of the CX-50 as a more rugged cousin in the Mazda lineup. Both 
the current CX-5 and the all-new CX-50 share engines and are somewhat similar in size. There's almost an overabundance of trim levels. I think nine in total when I counted. There's a choice of a 2.5-liter four-cylinder 187-horsepower engine and the turbocharged 227-horsepower engine. Although, interestingly, the turbocharged engine will gain 29 horsepower, pretty significant, when running on 93-octane premium fuel. Uh, put it on 87 our, uh, horsepower drops Again, almost 30 horsepower. Like the CX-5, the CX-50 comes with a six-speed automatic transmission and all-wheel drive. Our road test was on the top of the line. A Turbo Premium Plus, this included a very nice leather interior, panoramic sunroof, 10-inch infotainment display with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, and wireless phone charging. And at least the case with my iPhone, wireless connectivity, which is kind of nice. So you don't have to plug your phone in. You put it in the charger. It stays charged up but yet connects to the system so you don't have to worry about killing your phone battery which is kind of nice add in the large 20 inch wheels and just about every electronic and safety feature possible the cx50 in this trim has really luxury car feel and look the cx50 as compared to its cx5 sibling has slightly more ground clearance and slightly heavier duty suspension to handle the off-road driving on the roads the cx50 has competent road manners unlike many other compact suvs the cx50 with the turbocharged engine has a slightly sporty feel something that mazda does a very good job of incorporating into all their vehicles the turbocharged engine certainly is powerful enough for day-to-day Driving and hustles the CX-50 to 60 miles an hour in a little bit under 7 seconds. The ride is comfortable soaking up pavement brakes and other small bumps in the road. The overall ride, I think, is comfortable and pleasant without being too stiff. I never did take the CX-50 off-road, but with its all-wheel drive system and a bit higher ride height, uh, this SUV should do just fine on the roads less traveled and should be really a good vehicle for winter here in New England. Fuel economy during my test drive averaged about 25 miles per gallon. The EPA numbers are 23 city, 29 on the highway. Somehow I expected a bit more. Um, just me, but I thought maybe a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, compared to, say, my Hyundai Santa Fe Sport, which does a little bit better out on the highway. So a little, I figured newer technology would redeem better fuel economy maybe not quite like many vehicles in a class there's a full suite of driver assistance features such as lane keeping assist act, adaptive cruise control lane departure warning and our tester also had the 360 degree camera views the interior of the cx50 uh, feels just a bit tighter than the cx5 although the front seats are comfortable and supportive the rear seat offers plenty of seating for three and certainly four full-size adults uh, can fit comfortably and i have four big people regular you know, not not hundred pound people, but real size people in the car, and it was comfortable enough for everybody. The tilt and telescoping steering wheel, uh, and plenty of seat adjustments should make it easy for nearly any size driver to find a comfortable seating position. What I did notice though was some blind spots when backing up due to the roof line and window design. It's hard to see off to some of the corner of the car, which um, which the three hundred sixty degree camera area did help cargo area is quite generous with 31 cubic feet of cargo room with all the seats in use and a very generous 56 feet uh, with the rear seats folded the cx50 uh, is a comfortable to drive it handles well it offers a high class interior with premium touches throughout somehow mazda managed to uh, like they do in a lot of their vehicles meld fun to drive with some off-road capability 
and uh, they put it in a tidy little package, which is kind of nice. Uh, Mazda still manages some zoom zoom, even in a vehicle that says it's more set up for that road less travel. So good job for Mazda. Next week, we'll be reviewing uh, a vehicle that I haven't driven in quite a while, and that's the Chevrolet Bolt. Bolt with a B. It's an all-electric vehicle. Um, the last one I drove was a couple years ago, and of course, Chevrolet had a stop order on selling the vehicles. This one is the newest generation. I guess they have the battery problem resolved, and it's a very impressive car. Uh, it has both level 2 and level 3 charging, uh, as well as uh, an adapter for level 1. I've been just plugging it into a regular outside outlet in my house to charge it up. And uh, when it's fully charged, it has a pretty incredible range, uh, 200 and I think it was almost 270 miles, which is pretty good. Uh, I like driving the car a lot. It's pretty good. We'll talk about that next week. So if you have questions uh, after you listen to this podcast or any podcast, email me at jpaul at aaanortheast.com or go to aaa.com slash car doctor. You can find me there. And uh, until then, Make sure you wear your seatbelt, drive safely, be good to your car. And if you see emergency vehicles by the side of the road, slow down or move over. It saves lives. Talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.